I have a tale of two messages today. The first message exploded in my news feed uh, back in the beginning of September. It was all about the protests in Hong Kong. And it was a message that everyone had an opinion about. One guy, an owner of an NBA team, got in trouble because he tweeted out something about it. But the, the eyes of the world were on Hong Kong and this pro-democracy protest. And, and, and people wanted to talk about it. That They wanted to share that message. Second message. Um, you know that I just went down to see my dad back in October, and, and I had to get on an airplane in order to go see my dad down in L.A. And as I got on the plane, the, uh, the flight attendant got up and began to talk. And I just kind of tuned it out. Why? Because I've heard that message before. Um, is this on, Clay? I, I've heard the message before a lot. Something about seatbelts, something about flotation device of your seats in case of a, 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 a water landing, like there's water landing between here and, and, and L.A. I, I don't know, I guess. Um, but but I, I turned that one off. Now, now, why is one message seen by so many people and, and shared with so many people, and the other message, not so much? Is it because that second message is getting kind of old? I, I, I've heard it, blah, 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 airplane, da, 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 da. Both are very important messages. One is, one is pro-democracy. One could save my life. And yet, because it's an old message, I kind of dismiss it. Which brings me to this. We have a message that God wants us to share with the world. How often do we just kind of see that as an old message? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, turn to Jesus. Jesus loves you. Die for your sins. Uh, uh, rose from the dead. Blah, blah, blah. And we don't necessarily see the importance of sharing that. And I wonder then how that comes across to the world. But let, let me tell you this. We've been given a task now, I have an experiment that I want to do, and, and I guess I'll do it right up here uh, on the, uh, the communion table. Here's my experiment. Ready? Thank you. I knew somebody had to finish that. Why? If I just went that, 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 and then I walked off, and a lot of you would be going, no, you have to finish that, Right? I mean, you've got, you just, you can't leave that out there, that, that secret knock. Well, have you ever wondered about the uh, ending of the book of Acts? Did you know we just finished the book of Acts last week? Some of you didn't even know. Because it doesn't end with a bang. It doesn't end with us, uh, this amazing treatise uh, uh, about the gospel. All it says is that, that Paul was welcoming people into his, into his house. He was under house arrest, and, and he was telling people about the Lord Jesus. And you kind of go, wait a second, isn't there an ending to, to that? Well, well, let's do this. Well, let's go to Acts chapter 29 today. If I ask you to go to Acts chapter 29, take out your Bibles, go to Acts 29. Well, let's go to Acts 29. Anyone? Is there a problem with turning to Acts chapter 29? Hoy. There is no Acts 29. Or is there? 
You, know, you, you might say, well, Trey, in my Bible, it just stops at 28, and, uh, yeah, and there, there is no Acts 29. Oh, well, yeah, sure. From Dr. Luke, we don't have Acts 29, but I would say that we actually do have an Acts 29. It's like Luke began, and now it's up to us to finish it. You, you see, Acts 29, I believe, is still being written. It, it, it continued to be written in, in the churches in the year, uh, first century. It continued on through Christendom and is still being written today as we are the church of God fulfilling the great commission and expanding the kingdom of God. You know the great commission from Matthew chapter 28. Go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, his final words were, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world. And they obeyed. They were his witnesses. The gospel permeated the known world. And it wasn't just a new philosophy. It actually was changing people's lives. There was a power. That's why I subtitled this whole year this book of Acts study as the unstoppable, explosive power of the church. We talked about dunamis, dynamite power, TNT, dynamite. And that's really what it means to write the next chapter of God's church. I, I want you to see that the way that the gospel works, the way it worked in the book of Acts, is still the way that the gospel works today. It compels us to continue the story of God's power alive in this world today. So here's Paul. He's under house arrest in chapter 28. He's sharing the gospel with people. And then that's it. It's like Luke doesn't know how to finish a story. We don't know about the trial. Remember, he's going to stand trial under Caesar. We don't have that in here. Uh, we know that uh, eventually Paul's going to die. We don't have that in here. It's kind of like one of those movies that I walk out of and go, well, that was a dumb ending. It's like, it's like it, it didn't make sense. Have you ever seen a movie that just the ending just didn't make sense? So therefore, I, I don't see this as a movie that ended. I actually see this as when I was a kid, and, and Nick, you're probably right in the same uh, age group as I am, uh, there was, when I was in about fourth grade, a, a series of books called Choose Your Own Adventure books. And these were different kind of books because the story wasn't written from, uh, from the beginning to the end. You, you would read part of the story, and then the story would stop, and it would say, okay, now which way does the, the hero go? Does he choose this path, or does he choose this path? And, and if he chooses this path, you, you turn to page 28, and if he chooses this path, you go to page 32. And so I would invariably go to page 32, and it would say, and your character dies. I was like, well, that's a dumb ending. I didn't mean 30, I meant 28. And I would go back, I would cheat. Did you ever cheat? Yes, of course, you would cheat. So I'd go back. Why? Because I didn't want the story to end. I wanted it to continue on. I believe that's exactly what God wanted us when he brought us the book of Acts. To, to be inspired by what God's Spirit is doing in the church, only to then say, now it's your turn. You, you've come to the end of Acts, now what are you going to do? Are you going to turn to page 32? Or are you going to choose, choose 28? Are you going to allow your faith to die with you? 
or are you going to continue the story to write the next chapter? Now, there, there's a church that's mentioned in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, the church in Thessalonica. Now, not much is said about it. Uh, we, we know that Paul was there for three weeks. We know that there was Jewish persecution of the church, and then we know that, that Paul left. But Paul stayed connected in heart to that church. He, he wanted to go back and see them. He, he cared about them, could not go back, so he sent Timothy, his protege, back, and Timothy would bring him great news about how the church was doing, this little church in Thessalonica. So Paul writes a letter to them. Actually, he writes two of them that we have in our Bible, First and Second Thessalonians. And it's this church in Thessalonica, that I, or Thessalonica, that I believe is actually an Acts 29 church. Well, what we see them doing, they got it. They, they realized that the story was now theirs to write as well. And, and what you see in, in Thessalonians is, is the way that the gospel um, is received by someone, and how it redirects their life, and then finally how it rings out from them. So Acts 29, I actually think would be good to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So let's do that. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and see what an Acts 29 church would look like. Here we go. Starting in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that's who is sending the letter, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what Paul's commending them for is, is faith that produces work, love that produces uh, labor, and hope that gives them the ability to endure. Uh, and uh, then in verse 4, he says this. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now, this is not to be a debate about predestination and election and uh, who God chooses and who God doesn't choose. I actually have a very interesting way of looking at the election that we read of in, in the New Testament. I believe that when you look at the way God chooses people, he's not choosing individuals as much as he's choosing a group of people. And, he, and the people that God chooses are the ones that will come to him in faith, just like Abraham did in the Old Testament. Pastor Andy, I, I love a sermon that he, uh, he brought a few years ago, and it, it was entitled, uh, Chosen for What? We were going through the book of Ephesians, and there's a lot of talk about God choosing you. And, and he, he, his, his whole understanding of chosen for what is, is this, that maybe the choosing isn't about salvation as much as it is for fulfilling a purpose. For example, he chose Israel. Jacob I have chosen. I'm Jacob I have loved. I choose Israel. Well, was Israel the only people that were supposed to be saved? Oh, did he choose, just choose them to be saved and nobody else? No, they were chosen to be a light unto the Gentiles. That's what they were chosen for. They weren't chosen for salvation. They were chosen for a very specific purpose. So I believe that the, the church here in Thessalonia, they understand 
<coughs> they understand that they have been chosen for what? Uh, for a purpose. Way before Rick Warren, they were a purpose-driven church. Okay, they, they knew their purpose, and that purpose was wrapped up in the power of the gospel and the way that it flows in a very supernatural way. Now we're going to get to that flow. The, the gospel is received, then it redirects, and then it rings out. And that's what we're going to see here. Look, look at verse 5. First, the gospel is received. <coughs> verse 5 says, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. The, the gospel is received. Now, Paul is saying, listen, it didn't just come to you with words. Words are philosophy. It's not just another philosophy to add to your worldview. It actually came with not just words. It came in another way. But please don't miss this. You still got to have words. We talked about this last week. You got to have words. The, the way that Mark uh, puts the, the Great Commission is this. Go into all the world and preach, which means you got to use words. Uh, in Romans 10, Paul says, how can, they, uh, how, can, how, how can they believe in something that they have not heard of, and how can they hear if somebody doesn't preach? And you say, well, uh, yeah, we, we, we've, we've, we've got to preach. Um, so, so you've got to use words. But while its words are included, it's more than words as well. It can't just be words. He says it also came with power and with the Holy Spirit and with conviction. Paul is saying that the testimony of his lips was backed up by the testimony of his life and that the conviction that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you will allow your life to, to display the power of what you say. So you don't have to be perfect to be an Acts 29 disciple, but you do have to be changed. You do have to be changed. If you've been in a Bible study with me, I talk about this all the time. You know, look at your life now and what it was like five years ago. It should have changed. It should have grown. You should have grown deeper in your faith. Or 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. Because you are different today, that shows, that proves the power of the gospel is true in your life. Which brings us to the second thing that I want you to see. The gospel does is received. you got to receive the gospel. But then it redirects you. It redirects your life. Uh, look, look at verse 6 and also verses 9 and 10. Verse 6 says, You became imitators of us. You became imitators of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 9 and 10, they themselves report what kind of re reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for him, for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. There are four ways that our life is redirected. Paul says in, in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God. You see, Paul understood that there is power in the gospel to change our lives. And if you're putting your trust in anything else to change your life, you've you got to understand that that is impotent. 
and that God's Spirit is the only one that can actually bring about true change. So he redirects us. He redirects our allegiance. If you look there in verse 10, it says, you've turned from idols. Idols that can't save you at all. Idols that are impotent to the living God, the true God. Where you put your allegiance is huge. I ran across a story this last week about a man named Patrick Reynolds. I want you to listen to that and remember that, that name, Patrick Reynolds. He uh, works for the American Lung Association, and his job is to persuade people to not smoke. You know who Patrick Reynolds' grandfather is? A guy named R.J. Reynolds. Now, some of you are laughing because you understand that R.J. Reynolds is the founder of the second largest tobacco company in America. What happened? Well, here's Patrick Reynolds, his grandson, who leaves the business, does not claim any of the fortune into his life at all. Why? Because smoking killed his dad. And now he is on this crusade to get people to stop smoking. He says, I want to make up for all the damage my family has done. There's power in his testimony because he has switched allegiances. He's actually disavowed his family. You don't do that. You have an allegiance to your family, but not if your family is going down the wrong path. The Holy Spirit comes into our life and says, you're going down the wrong path. You need a different allegiance, not to these idols, but to God, the true God, who can really, truly make a difference in your life. There's also a a redirection in our anticipation. There in verse 10, it says, as you wait for his son from heaven. Boy, I got to tell you, nothing is as cool as for a minister than to be at someone's deathbed. And that person is a strong believer. Because though there might be some trepidation based on not knowing the process of which they're going to die, it's beautiful to see the look of anticipation on their face. To know that this life and all of its limitations and and hurts and pains is going to be gone and they're going to step into the, the presence of Jesus Even though they might be a little afraid of the process, they are looking forward to it. There's this amazing joy and peace on their face because they are anticipating the the concrete, the cement of their faith that was once abstract. There's a Muslim woman who had a... There was a missionary that was influencing the, the, the community and this Muslim woman had a daughter, 16 years old, who died. And she went up to the missionary and said, what did you do to my daughter? What what, what did you do to my daughter before she died? And the the, the missionary said, I don't know what you're talking about. And and the woman said, listen, you you did something to to our daughter because she died smiling. And our people do not die like that. You did something to her because she had an anticipation about what was coming next. There's a redirection There's a redirection of our allegiance. There's a redirection of our anticipation. There's a redirection of our authority. Uh, In verse 6, he says, you became followers or imitators of the Lord and of us. Uh, Being an imitator, being a follower, that's mimicking somebody, following the leader. As we follow the leader, our Lord, and those he's put in spiritual authority over us, we acknowledge that we have a different authority in our life. In in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul would go on to say, on the contrary, we speak 
of as men approved by God. See, we have a different authority, he's saying. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Doesn't that sound like Peter and John in Acts chapter 4? When, when they were told by the, the, the temple leaders that they were not supposed to preach in Jesus' name anymore, and they said, well, you tell us whether we should have you as our authority or God, because God tells us to preach in this name. So, so you, you tell us. This attitude of, I have somebody new uh, guiding my life. It's no longer me. I, I'm not the Lord of my life. You're not the Lord of my life. God is the Lord of my life. Fourthly, and almost finally, there is a redirection of our aim in life. Look at verse 7, real quick, of First Thessalonians 1. It says, And you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. You became a model. There, there's a different aim in our life when we understand what it's like to be an Acts 29 believer because no longer is it about you getting to go to heaven. Yes, you're mo- you are following the model, but then you turn around and you become a model for somebody else. Not only are you now a disciple, but you now make other disciples as well. It's not just you getting to go to heaven, but you are telling other people how they can be made right with God as well. And so, and what do they model? Faith, love, and hope, just what Paul had told them about. So the last move, so the, the, the gospel is received, it is redirecting. It redirects us, and finally it rings out. It rings out. Look at verse 8. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, verse 8 says, uh, the Lord's message rang out, rang out. Keep that in mind, rang out. It rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. It rings out from you. Now, you might say, well, wait a second, preacher. You're the preacher. You're the one making the messages. You're the one getting paid to do this. That's your job to proclaim. But if that's your attitude, that that's my job to to proclaim, then you've missed out on what ring out means. Because in the Greek, ring out means echo. It's actually the word ex echo. Echo. Do you know what an echo is? It's a reverberation of the same thing. Hello, 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 hello. Echo, echo, echo. You ever do that? You're at the Grand Canyon. You're echo, 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 echo. It's the same thing being said. So this could mean that the message is going to echo, which means I preach it at 8.30, and then I preach it at 10.30, and then I preach it at 11.15, and then tomorrow, uh, going into Prineville, I'll preach it again, and then on Tuesday, I'll go over to Fred Meyer in, in Redmond and preach it again, and on Wednesday, I'll go up to, 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 to Terrebonne and begin to preach it again up there at the, uh, the, the, the quilting shop up there, and then on Thursday, I go, go down to Bend, and I'll preach it again. Is that what echo is? No, 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 no. Echo is, is when you come here on a Sunday, and you hear from God, no matter who is up here, by the way, no matter who's bringing the message, you hear the message and it rings through you so that as you leave this place, that message keeps going on and on and on and on. It's like a big bang happened in Thessalonia or Thessalonica and they just continue to reverberate it. That's the difference between the early church and many modern day churches today. The folks in the early church 
they were contagious. They echoed. They echoed the message that they heard. They, it was, they weren't content to come and sit in a pew on a Sunday morning and to be fed and to be challenged and to learn. Those are all good things, by the way. And then go home and live life. And then the next Sunday, come back and sit in the pew and learn and be stretched and, and be challenged and grow. And then go home and live their life. And then the next Sunday, come back and do it over and over again. They heard the message and they lived it. They spoke it. They told it to anyone and everyone that they, <laughs> it's contagious, uh, exactly, that, that, that they would come into contact with. They were, they were contagious. So as I finish today, and that was the turbo version of what everybody else got, um, you can isolate yourself. You can choose to isolate, to, to say, you know what? That the world is going to hell in a handbasket. I'm just going to do my own thing over here. I'm going to isolate myself uh, from the world. You can insulate yourself. You can insulate by just saying, you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to close my eyes to, to, to the problems in this world that are caused by a sinful nature. So I, I can isolate. I can insulate. All too many people that I know, they'll just vegetate. They'll, they'll just, they'll, they'll listen. They'll take it in for themselves and They'll be very apathetic to, to anybody else and, and their spiritual lives. So isolate, insulate, vegetate. But I got to tell you this, the Acts 29 church, the church that is committed to the principles that we have studied this entire year in the book of Acts, the church that is writing the next chapter has to choose instead to penetrate. Has to penetrate. There is darkness that is palpable. And we, we have a light. Jesus called you the light of the world. But you might say, well, no, he called himself the light of the world. That's also very true. Which means this, if you have Jesus, the light of the world, living inside of you, you are the light of the world. Which means that you have a job to do, and that is to light the way for somebody else. You can't get around that, folks. That's what it means to write the next chapter of this amazing book of faith. Back in 2003, I got the privilege of helping to plant a new church in the Sacramento area. About six months prior to the starting of the church, though, I first heard about the concept of the church from a friend of mine, and I said, well, what's your church going to be called? And he said, it's going to be called Life Point. And I thought, that sounds like Knife Point. Are you going to be uh, starting this church in a bad part of town? You know, Knife Point, I was just being silly. And he goes, no, it's going to be Life Point. And I go, why? Why Life Point? He says, because I want to challenge those who come to my church to always ask this, where does your life point? To whom are you leading the way for other people? Where does your life point? Does it point to your kingdom? Does it point to the things of, uh, of this world that are temporal? Or does your life point to something much more eternal and much more powerful. To the Thessalonian believers, the, the Acts 29 church, the gospel was received, it redirected them, and then it rang out from them. And that's what it must do for us as well.